0: Camp Sumter was the largest military prison of the American Civil War. A Confederate prisoner of war camp located near Andersonville, Georgia, 45,000 Union men passed through its gates between February 1864 and May 1865. It was also one of the war's deadliest locations. Thousands died in the overcrowded prison and among them were hundreds of Irish Americans who are now interred at Andersonville National Cemetery. The Andersonville Irish Project aims to find out exactly who these men were while also exploring the identity and the history of Irish America. It's an initiative by historian Dr. Damien Shields, who joins me now. Damien, you're very welcome to the History Show. Great to be on, Miles. Could you start by giving us a sense of the scale of Irish American involvement in the Civil War?
1: Yeah, no problem, Miles. It, it's really, really significant. The analysis that we've been doing recently suggests that in and around 180,000 Irish born men served the Union, in other words, the US forces during the war. So along with the First World War, it's the biggest conflict in, in kind of modern Irish history in terms of the numbers who served. Because of the way Irish people were emigrating and, and the ethnic cohesiveness of the communities of Irish people as well, we can add to that number because we know that in and around probably another 70,000 children who were born outside of Ireland to Irish parents but would have viewed themselves as ethnically Irish served. So what, what we're seeing in the American Civil War is probably in and around a quarter of a million ethnically Irish men going off to the front on the Union side, on the US side. and An awful lot of these guys die. Um, And as you were pointing out, Andersonville is such an incredible location because it becomes the deadliest location of all in the Civil War. And so because of the scale of Irish service, we know that there's an awful lot of Irish people who who died there.
0: Um, Give us an idea of how deadly Camp Sumter was. It really
1: was an incredible location. So so it's worth giving a small bit of background. Uh, In in the early years of the war, there'd been exchanges. Prisoners had been handed back in force when they were captured. But that system broke down in the summer of 1863. Uh, One of the major reasons for that was because the Confederates were refusing to treat African-American prisoners as normal prisoners of war. And so as a result, more and more prisoners were, were coming into the system and not going out of it. And the Confederacy was in a on in a, in a bit of a sticky wicket as the, the war was proceeding. Um, there was pressure on them in and around Richmond. They were running out of means to supply their own men, never mind prisoners. And so they were looking for an option in early 1864 where they could send these huge numbers of men. And they, they decided on this incredibly rural location. It's still an incredibly rural location in the southwest of the state of Georgia, where effectively they cut a compound out of, out of the pine woods. And it was an exposed area, a, a 69 and a half acre site there was no cover in it um, and men just began to funnel in there during that summer essentially and over that summer with the extreme weather conditions with the lack of cover with the fact that the prison was trying to service over three times the amount of men it was designed to uh, and there was inadequate rations men um, were starving in there it just became this horrific killing ground, if you like, where men were being taken out by dozens every single day to the dead house and buried in the cemetery that eventually would become Andersonville National Cemetery. As you pointed out, nearly 13,000 men. So so in and around one in four of the men who go through the gates there never come out again alive.
0: Damien you've come across some incredible material from the period including some photographs and letters that illustrate the individual human stories of the men who died. We're going to hear an excerpt from a letter in a moment from uh, George Bell. Who was George Bell?
1: George Bell's a really interesting individual because George is one of these men who is not in the United States when the war begins. And this is the type of of information we're getting out of this project. George was actually in Ireland in 1863 when he married a a woman, Lucy Switzer, who was actually a Palatine um, from Limerick. George himself was from Dublin. And both of them worked in domestic service But they decided in 1863 like a lot of other people at that time that their future lay in the united states and a lot of irish men in particular were going to the us at this period specifically with the intent of joining up because there was so much money available for it and george spends a bit of time in domestic service when they arrive in late 1863 but then enlists in the army in a regiment called the fifth new hampshire infantry and goes off to the front um, but is soon captured taken to andersonville and a year after he has landed in the United States, if he'd even been there that long, he's, he dies and is interred in perpetuity at Andersonville National Cemetery. So it's an idea of, of, of you know, some of the most recent immigrants coming from places like Dublin and suddenly finding themselves in, in this hell in Andersonville in southwest Georgia.
0: So this is an excerpt from George Bell's letter to his wife, Lucy. He gives the address, Point Lookout, Maryland, and it's dated May 25th, 1864. My dearest Lucy,
2: just a few lines in the greatest of haste to let you know that the regiment is leaving here tomorrow morning at nine o'clock for the front. I trust this will find you and my little son are in good health. I hope you receive my watch safe and my letter that I sent the same time letting you know all about it. If you have wrote to me before this reaches you, I suppose it will be forwarded on to me. So, my dear Lucy, I hope the Lord will spare me. The next time I will hear from my loved one will be on the battlefield. But the Lord is as strong there as here. I hope I may hear from you soon. The thoughts of you and my son will be always in my mind. I send you a small bit of money that was found in the battlefield. I took it from a rebel the other day. Perhaps it may be the last bit of money I ever give you. I always thought the Lord would give the pleasure to see you again, but now I begin to think it is too late. So, may the God of heaven spare and bless you and be my son's guide and keep him from a soldier's fate. That will be the last prayer of your ever affectionate, though absent, husband.
0: An excerpt there from a poignant letter by George Bell to his wife, Lucy, and George would die at Andersonville on the 11th of September, 1864, just a few months after he wrote that letter. Damien, uh, George Bell was from Dublin, but you've identified, I think, men from pretty much every county in Ireland who died in Andersonville
1: everyone miles yeah all 32 counties we've even identified a couple of the houses they were likely born in in ireland all denominations so there are irish catholics from munster there are ulster presbyterians uh, scots irish irish protestants it's all 32 and it's 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 an island wide experience because so many irish are, are involved in this conflict so It's also an enlisted men's prison. So what it's telling us, these are all working class people from across the island. So it's telling us their stories. Um, It's quite remarkable. And it's also showing us how they're spread out across the military. So, again, when we're thinking about the Civil War. We have a tendency to think of units like the Irish Brigade, like the 69th New York Infantry, and that's where the Irish served. But so far, we're up to 600 Irish Americans identified and they served in 210 different units. So it's showing us the ubiquity with the Irish are present in the US service across this period. They're everywhere and they're being taken into Andersonville from all over the front. Um, So really it is an all-Ireland story and it's one that's affecting all strata.
0: And I can imagine there were a number of Irish speakers, for example, who would have been incarcerated in Andersonville and a number of Irish speakers who would have died there. And there was a kind of a banding together of county men, of people from the same county. Uh, uh, That was the case in particular with four men from Donegal.
1: This is an intriguing story. And one of the things we're trying to pull out of this is how Irish men interacted with each other when they were in places like Andersonville. And the Donegal Irish are a particularly interesting example. So so one of those men was a guy called Fargal Gallagher, who's actually buried under the name Faragal Gallagher because that was how they heard his name in Gaelic Irish. So we know that there were people speaking Gaelic Irish in the camp. But those four men had all emigrated from different parts of Donegal to Pennsylvania. And that's kind of the key issue here of what we're seeing. They come into Pennsylvania and in Pennsylvania, they seem to have built up a rapport with each other because of where they were from in Ireland. They go into service in different units, but when they arrive in Andersonville, they seem to coalesce again. So these men all have a relationship. And of the four of these Donegal men, three of them die at Andersonville. Um, And one of them walks out of there, a guy called Michael Doherty from Falcara, with the wills of the other men so he has written down as these men are dying in andersonville their last will and testament of how these men would would give what they had left to their family um, and they're really important because one of the men had served under an alias he'd enlisted under a false name um, and so it's given it's given their families an opportunity to access funds as a result of it but it's showing us that it's important to these men that they're all from the same place in ireland but also that they're all from the same place in america so we're seeing their, their kind of community identity traveling across the atlantic and then down to andersonville as well
0: and of course all this is happening just about 15 years after the famine and you've also looked at the Irish Relief Fund donors who died at Andersonville
1: Yeah, and and that's one of the real heartbreaking things about this, is that there are plenty of men who die in Andersonville of exactly the same things that they were seeing people die of during the Irish famine. So the Irish Relief Fund donors were guys who gave money in 1863 out of the army and the Navy as well in an effort to try and stave off a potential famine in Ireland and their names were recorded. And a number of these men have given money and then a few months later are dying in Andersonville. Uh, We've even come across an incredibly stark story of one West Clare man, a guy called Owen Maloney, a young man from Tromra in West Clare. He dies in Andersonville Prison. But we know from his files that his father and him had both worked on a famine relief scheme, building a road in a place called Seafield in West Clare. His father had died on that road. Owen had taken his place so that he could keep his mother and siblings out of the local workhouse that were getting outdoor relief. He eventually saves off enough money to go to the United States where he ultimately ends up dying to the same thing of his father in West Clare. So it adds this kind of multi layered element to this of what it must have been like for people who had witnessed those horrors in the 1840s and early 1850s to, to then for them to finally get them, if you like, in, in 1864 in Georgia.
0: Now, the Donegal story is a story of solidarity, but there are other stories, unsavoury ones, uh, relating to the Irish at Andersonville. Tell us about the Andersonville Raiders. Yeah, this is a
1: fascinating story. So these are a group of notorious individuals who preyed on other prisoners within the camp. It was a bit of a lawless camp, and so anybody who came in fresh from a, a new campaign or had been recently captured, they may have had a lot of money, they may have had um, significant amounts of food and everything, and there were gangs in the camp who preyed on these newcomers in order to get what they had off them. And the most notorious of these groups was a group called the Andersonville Raiders. And eventually the prisoners in the camp actually banded together and got permission from the, the Confederate commanding officer at of the camp um, to try them, to capture them and to try them. And a number of them were executed and buried apart from the other prisoners in the camp. But most of them were Irish-American. And there's a very distinct Irish ethnic um, identity to many members of this group. So it starts to raise these questions for us about you know, how the Irish are, in some cases, sticking together. In, in other cases, not some of these men's victims were Irish as well. Um, but also, we have to wonder about the things like the prejudice that the Irish are facing and how that's making some of them band together, if you like, against native-born whites, because um, the Irish are facing an awful lot of prejudice within the military at this time as well. So not all the Irish in Andersonville um, were angels by any stretch of the imagination, and not all of them met a good end either.
0: Uh, what about the ages at which some of these people died, or the average age? Generally speaking, how old were the, uh, the, the, the inmates of Andersonville when they died? Yeah, this is one of the really interesting things that's coming out of the
1: project. So the average man who enlisted in the Union army was in his 20s, usually in their early to mid 20s when they join up. But what we're seeing so far with the 600 men we've identified is that although there are quite a number of young men, our youngest members were 16 who died there, the eldest is in their mid fifties. We're seeing a big spike in 30s and 40 year old men. So it's showing us a lot of these older men are enlisting at this period. We know that there's a mix at this time of, of early war volunteers, if you like, and people who've enlisted for economic reasons later on, but also that these older men are more susceptible to what's happening in Andersonville. And, of course, by the same token, then these are men who are more likely to have witnessed things like the Irish famine and experience that. But they're older, and so they're not able to take the hardships that they're enduring, the lack of food, the exposure, the changes in weather, the extreme heat and cold and things like that, um, is Im- impacting them more than it is the younger Irish.
0: Now, you mentioned earlier somebody serving under an alias. Was that unusual? Or why would you join the Union Army under an alias? exceptionally common, particularly among the Irish. And normally it's seen
1: traditionally as, you know, the Irish trying to pull the wool over the eyes of the military, that they're, you know, things like bounty jumpers, guys who are enlisting and trying to run away so they don't want their name tracked. And in some cases, that is true. But when you look at the guys in this type of detail, people who died, you see a more complex story emerging. So we have guys throughout the Union military, for example, who enlist under aliases because their father might be an alcoholic and they don't like carrying his name into battle. Or one example, a man who died in Andersonville, but he enlisted under an alias because his real name was Patrick and he didn't like being called Paddy by the English and by the native born white Americans who he worked with. And so he enlists under an alias. And so there can be a lot, of, a lot of different reasons for it. Sometimes they were fooled into serving. Sometimes they just distrusted the military and they distrusted a lot of the, the authorities and wanted to kind of keep their options open. And there seems to be a kind of a formula to it as well in, in that, the likelihood is in most scenarios that they'll enlist under their mother's maiden name. That's the standard alias that you will get. And of course, later on, if, if they die in a place like Andersonville, if their wives or their mothers are looking to claim a pension, they have to explain why the man who died isn't the same as the man that they were married to or who's uh, their son. So it gives you this really interesting insight into the reason that these men are under aliases. But if they did serve under an alias, it's interesting to note that uh, they are buried under their alias at Andersonville. So there are no, no corrections of their names. They, they're interred under the name that they served under.
0: Well, let's talk about interment because you'd assume that the Confederates would not have stood on ceremony with the 13,000 dead and they would have just buried them in mass graves, which would have made identification very difficult. So how is it possible to identify individuals?
1: We are incredibly fortunate at Andersonville. So they were all taken out on a cart. There were external hospitals as well, just outside the the barricades. And they were taken to a short distance where they were interred in mass trenches. Um, And they were laid out, so these trenches were dug um, and they were laid out one after the other in them as they died. Um, And they were buried by other Union prisoners who were working under guard. And the hospitals kept a roll of the men who died recorded their numbers and had a name beside it. And one of the prisoners who served as a steward in the hospital, one of the US prisoners, brought this list out with him at the end of the war. And he went back there just after the war ended with probably the most famous nurse in American history, a woman called Clara Barton, um, founder of the Red Cross, incredibly famous individual. And they went back together just after the war to go to the wooden markers with the numbers that have been placed on them and to get the names of the men that could be recorded. And so as a result, it's got a very low number. There's a a few hundred of them, but a very low number of unknown, unidentified burials there. And it's quite unusual in that regard from a lot of other national cemeteries from the Civil War. So very, very fortunate that that occurred.
0: Now, obviously, you're making a lot of information available, but you're also looking for information. One part of the project is a call for people to submit any information that they themselves might have. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, so we're running it as a kind of a a dual track where we're carrying out our own research And I should note that the Consulate General in Atlanta, the Department of Foreign Affairs there, and Andersonville Prison, along with Professor Nicholas Allen of the Wilson um, Centre in University of Georgia, have been incredibly supportive in the research that we've been doing and everything that we're putting out. But we're, we're doing that side of the research and we're calling for people who may have done work on people at Andersonville, who may have a relation, a connection to someone who was there to submit people to us. And everybody who submits, anybody who's identified gets acknowledged on the site. We have two forms of mapping that are freely available. We're creating a map that you can visit on the website of anyone who's identified to county level or lower in Ireland. So from townlands through to county and we're physically mapping them on a map of Ireland and you can explore your county and find out who there is in Andersonville. And also we're creating a global um, database of all the people that we've identified. So there are 600 on that now. But people can submit. Um, we have a, a Gmail account, so andersonvilleirish at gmail.com. And if they have any contributions to make, we'd be very keen to have them.
0: Well, the Andersonville Irish Project, it's a long-term project to find out as much as possible about these men. It's also a partnership, as you heard Damien say there, with the Department of Foreign Affairs and the Irish Consulate in Atlanta. You can find more on Damien's website, irishamericancivilwar.com, where all of his research, uh, incredible research, and all his projects live. Dr Damien Shields, many thanks indeed for joining us.
1: Thanks, Miles.